the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send the questions in through our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car today, we've been on the freeways and people trying to get here I-35 is a mess. So if you're one of those, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, it's Tuesday, even though to me it feels like Monday, and we don't have anything going on, so we can get right to questions that have been sent in. Um, Here is our first one. It is from our mobile app, this one from Kirby. Uh, Pastor Ron, in view of so many questions about the Sabbath, my question is, is the Sabbath a particular day or is it a practice uh, or implementation that can be exercised on any particular day? Um, You know, the seventh day in Jewish mindset was Saturday, of course, the, the last day of the week. That was the day that was set apart for the Lord. Um, the New Testament tells us that we can um, observe the Sabbath, and that just means the rest of God. We can observe the Sabbath on any day of the week. Uh, we, as I think everybody knows, we have, uh, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred on the first day of the week, the first century church changed the Jewish tradition into a Christian tradition instead of the seventh day of meeting on the first day in honor of the resurrection. So um, it is I think, yes to all your questions, Kirby. It is a particular day uh, in Jewish thought, uh, but it's also a practice. It's something that we can uh, exercise on any particular day. Colossians makes that clear. Uh, Galatians also touches on that subject. Uh, The Jewish Sabbath is uh, not something that we have to uh, obtain. I get a lot of heat whenever I ask this question because there's people read it's an everlasting covenant. Well, Jesus, remember, canceled that covenant. And he initiated a new covenant, and that's the covenant that we're under. And uh, I think your argument is going to be with the apostles. They're the ones who changed it from the seventh day to the first day. So, Kirby, thank you for asking the question. Um, We have, oh, on line one, Tanya from San Leandro, California. Hi, Tanya. How are you? I'm good, Papa. How are you guys doing? Did you enjoy your day off yesterday? We did. Thank you very, very much. Good, 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 good. All right, Papa, I have a question that's kind of a twofold question. So as you know, um, I do uh, online, I share the, you know, the gospel message online with people who come and chat. And one of the things 
I've noticed is um, a lot of folks from the Middle East will come on and they'll talk about how they saw Jesus in a dream. And um, so I'm asking advice for how to approach that, because then on the flip side of that, I had someone say that they had a near death experience and they were able to, you know, they felt they saw what was Jesus. And that, um, so I don't really know how to handle those two different situations. Um, I know that God, you see, can help make himself known to you, but how do you handle those two types of scenarios when someone says, no, I I dreamt about Jesus and I believe them. I mean, they're really saying, hey, you know, I'm in a Muslim country. I could die. Um, My family could be killed. And I understand all that. But how does that differ from the person who says, well, I had a near-death experience or, or I was in torment. How, how do you handle those two situations, Papa? And I'll take the answer off the air and tell Mama Tanya, I thank- love you. Well, she's listening. Hi, Mom. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> thank you for calling. Uh, Tanya, I, I, there, there are literally hundreds that I'm aware of now. I'm sure there are more. But there are hundreds of, of credible uh, instances where Jesus appeared to Muslims and people of other faith traditions, he appeared to them in a dream. Now, the way we know, and this is what I would do, if somebody said, well, Jesus appeared to me in a dream, I would say, well, then you got born again, right? And then they would typically ask, well, what does that mean? Uh, and then you could explain to them, if Jesus appeared to him in a dream, now they are absolutely right, and this is why Jesus does this. Um, the, converting to Christianity uh, could cause them all kinds of trouble, including even up into their own lives. So Jesus reveals himself, much like he did in the Old Testament to people, much like he did in some cases in the New Testament, but he revealed himself. And the whole point of revealing himself is to draw them to him. And what that would suggest is that, one, they were a diligent seeker of God. They had genuine questions about their own faith tradition, or they had genuine questions about who God was, and Jesus appeared to them. So when that happens, your follow-up should be, well, if he appeared to you in a dream, I'm sure he said to you, come to me. So did you give your life to Jesus Christ? And if they would say, well, no, I would say it's impossible then that that dream was really from the Lord unless you surrender your heart now knowing that he came to you. So I think the way we can tell that's a legitimate dream or a vision, some people claim to visions, uh, is that, that, of course, that vision would be to call them to Jesus and they would be saved. In the other situation, and Tanya, I have a friend uh, who has had the exact same situation. Uh, he saw a, a tunnel of light, and as he got closer to the end of the tunnel, he was in a motorcycle accident, and, and as he was there dying, uh, he saw this light and it was so warm and it was so fuzzy and he felt nothing but love and comfort. And and so he would tell me, uh, Pastor Ron, I know you, you care about me, but I know I'm going to heaven because of that experience. And then I have to tell him that the Bible says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Did that light or the voice at the end of that tunnel. Did that light tell you to repent of your sin? Well, no. He just loved me where I was. Well, that's impossible for that to have been Jesus, and here's why. And then you can explain to them that without repentance, without the forgiveness of sins, which requires a confession of sins, then no one can be saved. And and uh, that's the, the real marker there. And um, that friend of mine is to this day convinced that he's going to heaven and he can continue to live any way he wants to because he already has the deal sealed. That's his word. And um, uh, I just told him the devil, the Bible says the devil masquerades as an angel of light. And then we warn them, Tanya. That's what you do. Just say, well, if you had that near-death experience and that warm, fuzzy feeling, and that warm, fuzzy feeling didn't say repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ, then that was the enemy giving you false hope and false comfort. And uh, be very direct with them. I have found in my own experience that those people are really, really hard to uh, persuade. And the reason they're hard to persuade is because they don't want to stop sinning. 
Tanya, I did a message just this past Sunday, and I say this often, but there's only one reason that people reject Jesus Christ, and it's that they don't want to sin. It's not that they can't believe. It's not that they have intellectual problems with the concept of of God and man being in one person in in Jesus Christ or the virgin birth. It's not that they have intellectual problems. It's that they don't want to stop sinning. And it's the only reason anybody rejects Jesus Christ. And then when they start rejecting Jesus Christ, the more you say no, the easier it becomes, the harder your heart becomes. And when that's the case, then we've got all kinds of obstacles. And I always warn those people that they are really in an urgent situation um, because their heart can get so hard that they cross that line. And if they cross that line, it's a line that we can't see, they can't see. But, of course, God knows what that is. Their heart gets so hard that they can't even respond any longer to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. One other thought, Tanya. I've been in hospital rooms with people on their deathbeds, and I mean, you know, within an hour of dying and trying to share the gospel with them. And I've seen firsthand the ugliness and the sickness of a, of a, of a stone-hard heart. I've had a man spit on me, um, screaming at the top of his lungs, get out, I don't want to hear about Jesus, get out, get out. That's the end of the road for people who want to hold on to false hope. So in your first scenario, it is very likely that that a Muslim received a vision or a dream uh, of the Lord. But the way to codify that is to simply say, well, then he said to you, did he not, to repent of your sins, ask to be forgiven, and then come to him for salvation, and only to him. And and if Jesus really appeared to him, the answer will 100% of the time be yes. In the other situation, the angel masquerades, or the devil, I'm sorry, masquerades as an angel of light. Tanya, we miss you. It's time for you to come visit again. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Carlos from the Northeast Side from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a quick question. Does the devil and his demons plant evil thoughts in humans, or how does that work? There's so much evil in this world. I'm just trying to find out if the Bible talks about it. Thank you, and God bless. Carlos, there's biblical precedent for the devil planting thoughts in our minds. Uh, demons, um, you know, there are all different different levels of, of strength in demons. Uh, I, I think it is likely, although we don't have a biblical example of it, I think it is likely that those really powerful demons can also plant thoughts in our minds. Now, remember, they can't read our mind, Carlos, but they can plant thoughts in our mind. Now, we know that because it was the devil who prompted David to number the troops of Israel to take that census of the fighting troops. And that was a horrific sin. And uh, we know that 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 plant was from him. We also know that Saul and others were influenced by the devil. So, um, yes, they they can plant thoughts in our minds. That's why I always say it's not a sin to have ugly thoughts or evil thoughts. They come from an outside source. What becomes sin is when we entertain them and take action. So the way we do it, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, is to take every thought captive and make it obedient, make them, our thoughts, obedient to Christ. And uh, that way the the thoughts uh, don't continue to bother us. So the answer is yes. Again, he can't read our minds, but he can plant thoughts in our minds, and he does it all the time. And behind all of the evil in this world is that snake, that serpent, the devil. And um, believe me, we're living in a time where evil is called good and good is called evil, and Satan is behind all of that. Good question, Carlos. Thank you very, very much. Here's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I have a question about Christian movies and movies in general. If God is mentioned in a fictitious story respectfully, does that violate the law of not mentioning God's name in vain? There's nothing to reference when it comes to movies, fictional literature in the Bible. Please share your thoughts. Thank you. Anonymous, um, um, no, uh, if, if God's name is used in a movie, that is not taking God's name in vain. 
Now, if God's name is used as a pejorative or used as a curse, then that's taking God's name in vain. And you said, asked me to share my thoughts. So I'll tell you what my my line has been uh, from the beginning since I got saved. Um, uh, I just don't want to go to a movie where God's name is taken in vain. Uh, Paula and I, we have walked out of so many movies. Um, you know, we get excited. about there was a movie just recently. I, I can't remember the name of it. It was about rowing, uh, Olympic rowing back in the in the, the early 1900s. And um, I, it was so good. I mean, it was really good. And just out of nowhere, uh, needlessly, uh, they took God's name in vain. And so we, oh, we're so disappointed. But we have to get up and leave. And that's just us. I would never put that on anybody else. But that's a line that that I don't want to cross. So uh, the only time they're taking God's name in vain in movies or music or anything else is when they are cursing uh, God or using him as a cursing a name to, to curse other people. Um, I think you know what I mean. I don't even want to mention it here on the air. So, oh, my producer just said The Boys in the Boat is the name of the movie. I loved at least the 40 minutes we got to watch, um, but um, um, we, we got up and left. It just doesn't seem right to me. And again, I wouldn't put this on anybody else. The Bible doesn't say this. There are people who love the Lord with all of their heart, who just understand that's part of the culture that we live in, and they're okay listening to it. Now, I am in no no way, by no means am I a prude. Uh, but that's a line uh, that, that I just feel dirty crossing. So we haven't done that, and uh, it's been... Um, a long time since Paula and I have been able to see a whole movie about something. So I hope that helps you. This one is from Sandy from Seguin from our email inbox. Uh, during a family discussion this weekend, the question came up. In First Samuel 28, where Saul had expelled the mediums, but then sought one out, was the medium hesitant to cooperate because she knew God was against it and it was wrong? Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 6 is her reference, or because of Saul's expulsion and possible punishment. Also, what was Saul's reason for expelling the mediums? Thank you for your teaching, Sandy from Seguin. Sandy, um, um, I I get a lot of questions about this passage of Scripture. Um, Saul expelled them because he knew God hated it. It's an abomination to God, whether it's a um, seeking a medium, um, um, looking for evil spirits or familiar spirits or um, uh, tarot cards or or uh, astrology. Um, all of those things God hates, and Saul knew it. Now, remember, Saul was doing all kinds of things that were contrary to God's will, but, you know, that was his appearance of righteousness. And so he expelled them. Uh, maybe, and we don't have any information, but maybe even with some of, of uh, Samuel's prior um, encouraging. So he expelled them, and of course the penalty was death to the medium or the spiritist. Uh, and yet when Saul was afraid and he knew he couldn't talk to God, well, that's when he, in disguise, went to this medium and uh, and and he asked to see Samuel. Uh, every time he needed to talk to God, Samuel was there. Now Samuel is dead, and he has no one to, to talk to, no one to get answers from, and he's desperate. And by the way, this was his last night on earth. And so he summoned the medium. Now, the medium in this story was shocked. It tells you they know they're phonies. But when Samuel really came up, she was the most shocked person in the place. And she knew instantly, you're Saul, and this is a trap. And uh, the reason that she was afraid is because Saul would have uh, killed her. That would have been the punishment for the medium or the spiritist. And that's when Saul said, no, I I won't do anything. I want to talk to Samuel. Then Samuel came up, and of course that changed everything. He was told that he and his sons would be with Samuel uh, the next day. And that doesn't mean he went to heaven. What that means is that he's talking about in the grave. 
So where I am in the grave, I'm dead. You'll be there also. Uh, we know where they went. It was Luke chapter 16. Uh, the, those who were righteous went to the place called Abraham's bosom. Uh, those who were not like Saul and his sons, they ended up in the place of torment. Uh, and they'll be there until the great white throne judgment and and being cast into the lake of fire. So, Sandy, that was his reason for expelling him in the first place. He was it was sort of a faux righteousness, um, um, not of the heart, but just sort of an outward appearance of doing the right thing. And of course, this is the incident that cost him his life. Great question. I'm glad you're having family discussions about the word of God. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. How am I doing on time? I got a long question. Okay, I think I can do this. This one is from Gregory. Uh, Pastor Ron, have you commented on Alistair Begg's controversy about attending the wedding of a trans grandchild? Uh, Gregory, I think I have. One time I did get a call a couple weeks ago. Um, um, Alistair Begg, I, I want to say out front, is a faithful preacher of the gospel. I certainly don't agree with him on his Calvinism, but but he's a faithful servant of God. He has served the Lord faithfully and without a hint of scandal uh, for 45 years um, uh, uh, and has been um, remarkably well received by a lot of people. So um, uh, I don't want my response here to cast any aspersions on uh, the validity of his ministry. He has been a faithful servant and, by the way, a really good Bible teacher, with that exception of the Reformed theology. Um, but, and I think this is important to say, he is grievously wrong about this situation. I understand the emotion. A grandmother wants to go to a wedding. Uh, her 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 son, her grandson, I think, was marrying a trans person uh, who means biologically they were the same sex. Um, and uh, she wanted to know, can I go? And he said, yes, it's a good opportunity to witness sharing the love of God rather than condemning them. And because they know where you stand, uh, they'll always be able to come back to you and that door will be open to witness. I think that's a horrible answer, Um, Gregory. I think that the worst thing that we can do is give any sense of acceptance or approval or affirmation. Uh, to a wedding that instantly invites the wrath of God. Instantly. I mean, especially with, with homosexuality and trans people, it's, it's, it's just in the face of God. It's mocking him. And the truly loving thing. Now, we think it's loving to say, well, I'm going to come. You know, I disagree, but I love you. That's not loving. The most unloving thing you can do is give the impression that you are going to celebrate with them. And that's what a wedding is. It's a celebration. The worst thing that we can do is give the impression. The most unloving thing we can do is give the impression that um, it's okay. And the idea that, well, they know where we stand. Well, the minute we go to a wedding that is outside of the will of God, the minute we do that, they do know where we stand. We stand in a place of compromise. And uh, I don't think Alistair Begg uh, considered that. I think in the world that we live in, we get so tired of being called haters and bigots and narrow-minded that we want people to like us. And so we try to find a way to make everybody happy. And the only one that we should really be concerned about being happy with is is the Lord himself. So uh, I do believe he was terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, He has received uh, an enormous amount of criticism, and it's still going on. I think it's three weeks, maybe even a little bit more into this. And he is still getting um, skewered on on social media, and uh, people have left his church. They're talking about him like he's an unsaved man, uh, and I think that's charitable. The one thing that we Christians can't do is be like the world and decide because of one error— we're going to cancel him or we're going to render his ministry um, of no value 
If that's the case, then we're just as bad as the other side. We need to pray for Alistair Begg. We need to thank God for his faithfulness. And 45 years of faithful service has to mean something. And I don't know why we Christians, I understand why the world does it, but I don't know why we Christians have to immediately castigate anybody who disagrees with what our particular view on Scripture is. And we just dismiss them like they don't even exist. And I can promise you that um, if Alistair Begg and I would go to heaven on the same day, uh, I wouldn't be qualified to carry his lunch bucket. That's what I know for sure. So, Gregory, that's my comment. He's a faithful servant of God. He is horribly wrong in this instance. Uh, I think he uh, shot himself in the foot. Uh, At the same time, we Christians ought to be known for grace. Why? Because we ourselves have received grace. And, Gregory, if you want to go into the archives, um, my producer just said that I addressed this topic uh, on Friday, February 2nd, so it's on that program, and that's possible that I may have given a little bit more information then because it was new at that particular time. Well, there's the music, so I had enough time to get Gregory's question. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. If you want to call, you better do it quick because if this half goes as fast as the first half, believe me, we'll be out of here in a minute. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question anonymous from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor Ron, have you heard of a new app called Hallow? H-A-L-L-O-W. Should I get it? Um, um, let me just say, generally speaking, and I'll talk about this app specifically in a moment, but generally speaking, prayer apps are silly. Prayer is talking to God. You don't do that via a text or via social media or via an app. You just talk to the Lord. Now, this uh, this app is Catholic. Uh, it is where you can go in and look at a bunch of prayers and pick one um, that you feel like praying. There is absolutely no value at all in these things. This is a religious exercise. Can you imagine how disappointed God would be if you really wanted to talk to him and instead you let somebody else talk to him through you? And that's what you're doing when you're repeating somebody else's prayers or when you're reading prayers. Now, I'm going to go a step further than just hallow. You know, there's a lot of of, of um, denominations that have books of prayer. The Anglicans have the common book of prayer. Uh, you know, there's no value in repeating somebody else's prayers. I want to say it again. Prayer is simply talking to the Lord. If you want a wonderful model for prayer, I suggest we go to Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, he gave us a model for prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Jesus said that was the model. And that doesn't mean that we just repeat that. That would be of little value for us if all it was was meaningless repetition. But what Jesus is doing there and is brilliant is he's giving us an outline for prayer. And that outline for prayer, as the Spirit fills in the details, believe me, it will be so rich. It, it absolutely, The first time I taught this, the Lord's model for prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the Lord's model for prayer. Um, the disciples said, teach us to pray. And when I taught that the first time, and I, I did, I think, one week on every diff- every verse in it. And 
um, um, it, it, it transformed my prayer life. Now, I don't do it the same way now. That was, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But the, the point is that the Holy Spirit begins to help you learn to discern the voice of God and the prompting of the Holy Spirit to to fill in your prayers. I'll just give you one example. Give us this day our daily bread. If you if you can pray that, the Spirit will ask you a question. Are you really content? If God never did another thing except give you what you need to eat and a roof over your head, would you be okay with that? You know, we have a tendency to ask God for a lot of things. Believe me, I've been asking God for a lot of things lately. And um, the question is, would I be content if the answer to those questions is no? And God's never failed. God's never uh, uh, come up short. Can we be content with what we have? That's the whole idea behind that model for prayer. And the Holy Spirit will convict you and give you an opportunity to uh, to repent. Uh, that's what Paul said to examine our hearts daily. That is, to me, the value of the Lord's model of prayer. Uh, it will penetrate your heart um, as you as you as you pray that, and the Spirit will teach you to pray. But no apps, especially no Catholic apps. Um, when God wants to hear from you, He wants to talk to you. And prayer isn't just saying things; prayer is also listening. Thank you, Anonymous, for the question. Ben wants to know, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and the word whole, W-H-O-L-E, is capitalized. So how can anyone think people will go to hell? Either Jesus' death works or it doesn't. What are your thoughts? Well, Ben, you don't understand. (laughs) Um, Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that here's the key, who Whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. So there's the requirement. You've got to believe. You've got to believe in Jesus Christ. So his sins are, I'm going to use theological words, his sins are efficacious for every person who's ever lived in this world. But they're only effective for those who receive. Jesus offers a gift. He doesn't force us to receive that gift. He offers it to us. We have to take it. And when we do, then we're born again. But the people who reject that gift, I think of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. As horrible as that sounds, I know a lot of people who sell out God and his gift of eternal life for a lot less than a bowl of stew, for a night's fun or whatever. So, Ben, you either receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You do that by believing who he is, repenting of your sins, asking for forgiveness, and then being born again, which means, Jesus, you're now in control of my life. If you do that, you're going to go in heaven. Twice, Jesus told Nicodemus, a very, very, very religious Jew, you must be born again. Or you'll in no way inherit the kingdom of God. He said it twice. First, I'm sorry, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, um, I think verse 3 and verse 5. Maybe it's 5 and 7. But anyway, that's the, um, the answer. Uh, if you don't accept Jesus' uh, death, if you don't ask for forgiveness, uh, then uh, what happens is you spend eternity separated from God. God simply honors the choice you made in life. He honors that choice in death. How unloving would it be of God if you spent your whole life, Ben, wanting to reject Jesus Christ? I want nothing to do with God. And then when you died, he forced you to spend forever with him. So he just simply honors the choice you make. Darkness is being separated from God. We call that hell. Light is being with Jesus forever and ever. We call that heaven. So, Ben, I hope that makes sense to you, and I pray that you'll get right with God and ask him to forgive you. This is a question just came in from our mobile app. It's anonymous. Hello, Pastor. Can you explain what Matthew 12, verses 43 and 45 mean? Let me read the verses, and then we'll uh, I'll talk about them. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. 
He says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it passes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it, and it's the unclean spirit that we're speaking of, says, I will return to the house I left. On its return, it finds the house vacant, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes out and brings with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and dwell there. And the final plight of that man is worse than the first. So it will be with this wicked generation. Now, Jesus, the context is very Jewish, um, and Jesus is simply explaining that the demon possession was fairly um, common. Um, we, we encounter demons often in our New Testament. And Jesus is simply saying that when a spirit comes out of a man, now there were times when the spirit could be cast out, um, but uh, he's, it says that um, he goes through arid places. Do you remember uh, in um, the Gospel of Luke with uh, um, Legion and the demons came out and they pleaded with the Lord um, not to cast him out into the arid spaces, but rather let him go into the, 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 the herd of pigs. There's no other explanation, Anonymous. We don't know why um, demon spirits are not comfortable in arid places or just out disembodied spirits, uh, but, but it is clear that they want a body or a home, a house to dwell in. Uh, they like to wreak havoc. They can do that. We see examples of that over and over. Now, what Jesus is saying, basically, and I use this when, whenever I encounter somebody who uh, thinks they're demon-possessed or, 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 or it's clear they're demon-possessed, and I want to make it clear, we don't go looking for that, but, but sometimes it's here. Uh, I always say to that person, and Jesus will always let me talk. A lot of times when you're dealing with somebody who's demon-possessed, you're not talking to the person or the host, but you're talking to the demon. And uh, I will make it clear, and God always gives me a chance to talk to the person. And I will say, if I cast this devil out of you, are you prepared to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I tell them the reason is because if you are not prepared to receive Jesus Christ, this demon is going to go out of you. But if you don't receive Jesus Christ, then he's going to go get seven other demons and come back and, and it'll be seven times worse than what you've already done. So that's what Jesus is talking about. It's the, rea- I'm sorry, the reality of spiritual warfare. So that's why he says uh, when it finds out it's vacant, that means absent the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, if it finds that house empty, then the, the the last condition is going to be worse than the first. And I've actually had people look at me and say, no, I'm not ready to, to do that. I don't want to give up this or I don't want to give up that. Uh, and then I'll just say, well, then I'm not going to cast the demon out because I don't want to make things worse for you. And um, I just de- deal with it that way. And, and, you know, when somebody rejects it, you know, we think of Mary Magdalene, who was inhabited by seven demons. Imagine how miserable her life was. Um, and yet, at the same time, um, when Jesus came in and came, he came into her heart, everything else, no other demon spirit could, could, could exist there. So that's what um, Jesus was talking about. That's just a behind-the-scenes look at spiritual warfare. Uh, that's why when we're, when we're casting out a demon... Uh, you have to be really, really careful to give the, the information to the people. And, and I know people, pastors, good friends, who will cast the demon out anyway. I just don't feel comfortable doing it because I don't want to make things worse. So if they're right, I'm right, I don't know, but that's what it means. Good question. Thank you, Anonymous. You know, I hate talking about demons and casting them out. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't happen that often, but it happens. Here's a question from Mitchell. He says, how can I love myself more biblically? Um, Mitchell, you don't, the only way you can love yourself more biblically is to lose yourself. You got to get over you. You know, Jesus said, uh, love your, your neighbor as yourself. And people will say, and this is a, a common false teaching, especially in prosperity or faith churches. Um, they'll say, well, uh, I can't love them until I learn to love myself. And I always tell people, and we get this a lot, you don't have any problem loving yourself. 
You're crazy about you. I know that because I'm crazy about me. I think about me all day, every day. Jesus said the way to biblically, truly love yourself is to lose yourself. Because if you lose yourself for him, Jesus said, then you'll find your life. You'll find the meaning of life. You'll find the purpose in life. You'll find the intimacy with God that he so desperately wants for you. But, Mitchell, the idea that you've got to learn to love yourself more is simply a worldly way of, of being led down um, the wrong path. So, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Accept his love. Remember, we love him because he loved us first. Accept his love. And then the love of God, Romans 5, 5 says, it's poured out into your heart. You'll be able to love others with that kind of love. And that's the love that Jesus wants you to love other people with. In order to do that, you've got to learn to love what he's done for you and who he's made you. And that comes, Mitchell, from a heart of gratitude. So please don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I've got to learn to love me. Um, the reality is we all love ourselves plenty. Love and loathe at the same time. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Adam asks, how could Jesus become sin and what sin is he becoming? Adam, um, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So it doesn't mean that Jesus just died for all of our sins. He actually became sin. Now, there is no explanation of what that matters. Now, I'm going to give you an opinion here. I personally think that this is the thing that perplexed Jesus the most when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. How could a holy, infinite God understand two things? The first, how could he understand becoming sin? Can you imagine Jesus, almighty God, being polluted by sin? I tell our church all the time, think about the worst thing you've ever done. The thing that you're the most ashamed of. Jesus became that sin for you. And he took the wrath of God because that's what you deserved. But he took it in your place. And beyond that, we don't have any more detail or insight into exactly that means in terms of the depth of his suffering and pain. And as I said, it's my opinion that that was the thing that he had to deal with the most. I don't know if you've ever been so disgusted by something. Imagine Jesus being disgusted by the smallest sin and then becoming my sin. I, I done, I've done a lot of really horrible things in my life. Way, way, way too many horrible things in my life. Imagine that evil junk being poured out and into Jesus Christ. So that's my opinion, Adam. The, the second thing he couldn't understand is finality. God was infinite. How could he understand dying? How could he understand being separated from the Father with whom he did perfect union since before there was a beginning? So I think in his death, all of those factors of 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes into play. He who knew no sin became Ron's sin so that Ron could become the righteousness or perfection of God. It is a marvelous thing to consider, but it ought to make us fall to our knees, Adam, in gratitude for the Lord. You know, I have a privilege of living a life that is just... Rich, full. God has enabled me to do things and be part of people's lives. And none of that have I ever deserved. He's allowed me to do that. And gratitude should always be the response of the Christian. Jeremy says in Ephesians 5, verse 5, What does impure mean? The other sins are clear, but I can't find out what that means. Jeremy, in that context, the 
the, the reference to unclean simply means sins not covered by the blood of Jesus. That's all it means. So when it says um, uh, impure, he's just talking about sins that have not been purified by the blood of Jesus. And, of course, if that's the case, um, then then we we are going to be separated from God. So that's all that means. There's nothing tricky about that at all. Here's a question from Keith. Pastor Ron, what do you think about a Christian getting into politics or running for office? Um, Keith, I personally wish more Christians would run for political office. Especially at local levels, the smaller levels, school boards, uh, city councils, um, mayors, um, uh, assemblymen, those kinds of places. Uh, I wish more Christians would run. Now, here's the caveat. Uh, For a real Christian to run for political office, he or she is going to have to stay away from compromise. If you want God to bless your move into politics, then you have to stay away from compromise. And I so wish that people, and I know there are pretty solid Christians who are serving in political offices from the lowest to the highest offices. I know that. The problem is that as they continue in politics, compromise becomes a part of the process. And we've got to decide. It doesn't matter what public opinion is. It doesn't matter how it affects our chances for re-election. It doesn't matter what it does to our, uh, our uh, um, fundraising. What we've got to do is say, okay, Lord, if you're calling me into politics, and this is the only kind of a man or woman God would actually call into politics, It's one who would stand firm and not compromise, not give in to the pressure from this world. I I imagine, you could just take our city here at San San Antonio as an example. How pleased would God be if there was one man or one woman on our city council who when they talked about funding abortion, when they talked about breaking laws, when they talked about uh, doing things that, that fly in the face of what the word says, would stand up and say, no, we cannot do this. This violates the word of God. And we don't do it. You know, we've been in city council meetings. We've gone through some permitting things and some legal things, zoning things. Um, uh, and and the city council meetings where I've been, they pray. And I know some of the people on that panel are Christians. And they pray in Jesus' name. But then Jesus isn't part of the rest of the meeting. Jesus isn't part of their decision-making process. And Keith, if if we could find politicians, male or female, who would say, now especially, think about this at the school board level or the county offices level or the sheriffs. Imagine how God could use a man or woman who would stand firm and not compromise. The minute we get there, we have to start compromising, making deals with the enemy. The minute that happens, we we cease to be cut off from the power of God. And unfortunately, Keith, that's what happens with most politicians. But I am all for it. I don't know if you're asking for you or for somebody else. But if it's you, you just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to be your man. I, I actually had a pastor. It's a church that we planted. And he felt very strongly uh, called into local politics. He, uh, God touched his heart. Uh, he, he ran for mayor uh, and won. He won. He was still serving as a pastor, but he won. And as he um, got deeper into it and had to start making the compromises, well, the, the next time the election came out, um, he didn't have the Lord's blessing anymore. Not only that, but he, he he had to step down from being a pastor because things had gotten in the way. So, Keith, all I know God wants is somebody to stand up and say, you know what, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what the press says, the media. I don't care what it does to my fundraising. I'm going to trust the Lord. That's the kind of man or woman that God would truly bless. Gino, this probably be our last question today. 
Gino says, when were angels created? Long time ago, Gino. I really don't know, except it was before man was created. It could have been a minute before. It could have been um, by earth time, a thousand years before. We don't know. We're not given that information in the word of God. But they were created. God always longed for fellowship. Um, the angels, uh, they also had to make a one-time only free will choice to serve him. Uh, Lucifer rebelled against God and he deceived a third of the angels in heaven. They would become demons or fallen angels. Um, and and, and their, their, their fate is cast. Um, but they were created before mankind. Now, let me give you an opinion. I got about one minute to do it. Um, I think the angels, I think what precipitated Satan's fall, Lucifer's fall, was when God made man, Ephesians 2.10 says, where is workmanship, where the, 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 the result of his creative magnificence, the best thing God ever made. I think that is when Lucifer rebelled. I think jealous of just how fearfully and wonderfully made we humans are. I think that's when uh, that, that rebellion in heaven occurred. That's just my opinion. The Bible doesn't address it. Good question. Thank you, Gino. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You have been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.